Howdy y'all, welcome to Urbane Cowboys. I'm Josiah Neely. And I'm Doug McCullough. Today we have, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, abortion, about the Dobbs, the Jackson Women's Health Organization case, possible reversal of Roe v. Wade, and uh, the leak of the draft opinion that happened recently. And to discuss all this with us, we have return guest Ramesh Panuru, who is the editor at National Review and writes for Bloomberg, among other places. Ramesh, welcome back. Thanks for having me back. But by the way, what, you know, because it, it, I've often been fascinated. So you, you are the editor. What, what is, uh, like, what do you do? What does the editor <laughs> do? Well, there's a lot of herding cats. Um, <laughs> I decide what is going to go into each issue of National Review. Um, every two weeks, with exceptions for holidays, uh, and what's going to go on the cover. Uh, and uh, in addition to overseeing the print magazine, I have a hand in other aspects of the larger National Review enterprise, including the things that go on the website. Okay, because I, I recently I was talking to someone who works for a different magazine or website, and uh, I said, "Oh, you are you the editor?" And he's like, "No, no, no, I'm I'm." I'm the publisher. And I said, okay, well, is that like being the owner? No, 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 I don't own it, but you don't edit it. I, so I don't, I, there's a lot of things I don't understand about that business, but that's not the subject of the conversation today. Today, we're here to talk about abortion. And I want, you know, I want to talk about the, the uh, Dobbs opinion and what that means. Uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time on the leak, but I do think we should talk about the leak uh, first. So someone, you know, this seems like it's a very, very rare thing, uh, perhaps unprecedented, unprecedented for someone to leak a whole draft opinion. Uh, what do you, uh, what do you think it, it means? And uh, you know, if you want to like recklessly uh, accuse anyone of doing this, you can do that too. But what, what are your thoughts? Uh, so this is obviously a huge breach of norms uh, and people who've searched for historical precedents for something like this have not really found convincing ones um, that are you know matters of the same level of public controversy um, and importance uh, so you know we don't we don't know and uh, and sometimes these things end up to be to have sort of surprising origins I would just say that if, this was a leak from uh, a liberal clerk or justice. Um, it, I think, is going to end up backfiring uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, and one of the simplest is just that I think the more time the political system has to adjust to a post-Roe world, um, the less likely the kind of um, uh, his, uh, you know, alarmed pro-choice backlash is to materialize in our politics. Yeah, I think that's that's probably right, especially these days when it doesn't seem like people can uh, focus on any story for more than a couple days. I saw. I think I was just looking on Twitter. It seems like people are back to talking about Elon Musk uh, again. So you know, maybe you know, maybe maybe it's too late even recording this, but. Um, well, I mean, we saw this in Texas, right? Last yes, uh, yeah. last fall, when we had um, a lot of national coverage suggesting this is this is already 
the end of Roe. And then, you know, everybody kind of moved on and Terry McAuliffe tried to seize on it in the Virginia governor's race. His numbers actually declined during that period. Um, so, it, you know, it's it's possible, especially given all of the other headwinds um, in our politics this year, that uh, that this doesn't have the effect that everybody always thought it was going to have. Beyond, you know, sort of referring to this as uh, just a sort of a breach of norms, I've, I've seen some, you know, sort of the Twitter class just saying, you know, nobody can even explain why this even matters. Well, I mean, I think there's there's a reason we have those norms, the the confidentiality of uh, what you know? What's being drafted in a chamber? Can you talk about that just a little bit, maybe for those sure. who are who, you yeah. know have a background in judicial proceedings? Why does this? Why does it matter from that perspective? So it matters for a couple of reasons. One is just um, the Supreme Court is still uh, a place where deliberation matters, and there is a back and forth process where arguments are refined uh, before being finalized. And, you know, this obviously disrupts that process because then you've got, you you don't, you can't engage in it if you're a justice or a clerk with the same level of trust in your colleagues that you have relied on in the past. Uh, And so, you know, it's a little bit of the the C-SPAN effect. Um, You know, you're, 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 you're not necessarily making a, an argument that you can, uh, uh, abandon on second thought quite as easily. And you can be embarrassed over, you know, uh, something that was infelicitous. Um, you've just got to worry about that. And then the, just more generally, the, the, there's a, just a huge blow to um, collegiality. Um, this is a small institution. Um, and it has re- depended for its functioning on people even with very, very divergent views getting along. Um, and I don't know if we want to, uh, I'm pretty sure we don't want to move into a world where it's like, you know, the House Freedom Caucus versus the the Progressive Caucus, um, but inside the Supreme Court. I've, I've heard some people sort of knee-jerk knee reaction of people are going to go to prison over this and all this, but realistically, you know, what? what's the consequences likely to be to the to the leaker? And I guess it probably depends on whether they're a licensed attorney or someone who's expecting to you know become a licensed attorney versus, say, some random IT guy that, that hacked the opinion. You know, could you can you sort of a, illuminate us a little bit about what the consequences to the leaker might ultimately be? Well, I think the consequences ought to be um, very negative for the career of anybody who was found to have been culpable in the leak. I just, uh, you know, it's, it's obviously, you know, if you have a legal career, the, the, those potential consequences are different. Uh, I'm afraid I am a little bit cynical and, uh, and jaundiced on this point in that I think that although, you know, if, if, if you're a, a clerk who did this, you, you probably should, should lose your license uh, and you should have to find a new career. Um, I suspect that there's going to be enough lionization of any liberal who did this, um, that that's not going to happen, that they'll be just fine. In fact, they'll be better off. Yeah, I suppose they, uh, a, a, if they happen to be a, uh, a licensed attorney, I suppose they might get disbarred, but then you know, uh, be able to become a best-selling author if they uh, write a book to, to sort of the tell-all of how they were the champion here. Right. Maybe they could get to 
the bottom of that uh you know gorsuch mask thing too uh if you remember that but oh yeah that was the big uh, the big story of a moment that uh, has been yeah, totally forgotten that's right uh okay well let's let's turn then to the opinion itself be so what is you know obviously uh, the case involves a Mississippi abortion ban after 15 weeks. What what's kind of like the back? You know, what is the background, the the significance of, of the case, uh, and, and all of that. So uh, Mississippi outlawed abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy, um, and it's an interesting uh, and strategically, I think, quite intelligent. Um, move for pro-lifers to have made because almost all of the polling suggests that most people support bans on abortion after 15 weeks. Even a lot of people who consider themselves pro-choice, who believe that abortion should be legal in the first trimester of pregnancy, even people very interestingly who say that they support Roe, uh, if you ask them in polls, favor this law. But it is a law that is flatly inconsistent with Roe v. Wade and its successor cases, um, and um, uh, and both parties, you know, in the case agreed to that. You know, Chief Justice Roberts, who who may be trying to find a way to split the difference and uphold the Mississippi law while also retaining something of Roe and Casey, sort of sort of floated that that idea during oral arguments. And the advocates on each side basically said no. And in fact, the pro-choice advocates, the pro-row advocates were the ones who were most eager to bat away the idea that you could have this kind of middle ground solution. Um, And so um, this ended up being a case that squarely put the question of whether Roe and Casey were going to stay in front of the Supreme Court. I'm I'm a little curious about that because it seems to me that that if if one tried if it was one, if one was motivated to do it the the court could overturn Casey uh, and find a way to preserve much of Roe but I think to explain that could you give us a little bit of a background on what Roe actually held and then how it was sort of transformed and became even uh, a broader right, broader, more unassailable right under Casey? Could you kind of give us a little bit of that background? So Roe um, holds that in uh, the first trimester of pregnancy um, that uh, you can't regulate abortion. Um, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a right. And then in the second trimester, um, essentially the second trimester, I should say, uh, you have a situation where you can regulate abortion in the interest of maternal safety and only in the interest of maternal safety. And then at the end of that period or, or um, at, really up until the point, so, of, so at the end of that period, so once the unborn child is viable, then um, the state has an interest in regulating abortion in the interests of fetal life, and it can prohibit abortion. Now, uh, the same day Roe comes down, uh, the the Supreme Court hands down Doe versus Bolton, a companion case, which says that even in that third trimester, even after viability, any regulation of abortion has to allow an exception for health, and the health exception has to be construed broadly to include emotional health, 
and familial health um, and psychological health um, and to account for the woman's age. Um, you know, uh, Justice Blackman, who wrote both decisions, has a lot of language in there about why this needs to be broadly construed. And that's one reason why you've had almost no abortion prosecutions um, over the last 50 years, even though a lot of states still on the books have laws saying um, abortions late in pregnancy are, uh, are still illegal in some notional way. Now, flash forward 19 years to Casey versus Planned Parenthood. The Supreme Court is being asked to reconsider Roe and um, is widely expected with all of the um, Reagan and um, George H.W. Bush appointees, the Supreme Court, to actually go ahead and do that and overturn it. But then it surprises people and doesn't do it. Um, and it, it makes some changes. Uh, it ditches the distinction between um, the first two parts of the pre-viability period and, uh, and basically says that, that you can regulate abortion before viability as long as it doesn't pose an undue burden on the abortion right. And then, you know, a lot of the litigation subsequent to that has been, well, what does that mean? And Justice Scalia, the late, great Justice Antonin Scalia always said, you know, that it's just a hopeless, uh, lawless, subjective test of, you know, what strikes this judge or this justice as undue and, uh, and, and doesn't or doesn't strike him or her that way. Um, and uh, but so a lot of things have changed in the law of abortion over the years. Um, there's been a lot of there's been a lot of instability on how you um, apply this law. So the Supreme Court at one point says partial birth abortion can't be outlawed, and then eight years later, if I'm remembering correctly, says yes, you can um, outlaw it. Uh, and one of the authors of Casey itself was the person who finally said, Justice Anthony Kennedy, yes, you can outlaw it. Um, but there has also been this basic rule in place um, pretty consistently, which is that you can't prohibit abortion before viability. One of the sort of, say, mocking of the opinion that I've seen on Twitter is the some of the lines from uh, Justice Alito about there being no tradition of no no longstanding tradition uh, of a right to an abortion, and Justice Alito actually goes back to the the common law in in quite a lot of detail. Um, what's the importance of that for someone who's not a not a, a legal scholar or, or you know a student of the law? What's what's the importance of the common law, and what what does how does that you know both the the English common law and the the statutes that were there on the books before? Roe versus Wade. What bearing would, should that have on the whole discussion about uh, about the right to abortion? So Roe v. Wade bases its holding on uh, to, on historical claims to a very significant degree, and it it takes the view that uh, it's doubtful that abortion was ever illegal um, at common law, uh, and so. Um, it sort of portrays itself as a kind of restoration of uh, an old tradition of legal abortion, um, and it says uh, it says beyond that. Not only was abortion very likely not illegal at common law, when abortion ends up being criminalized in the 19th century 
it's for a lot of reasons that are no longer applicable or are um, now considered repugnant, um, so you know, like sexist and racist reasons, um, as the argument ends up getting developed sort of after Roe, uh, but also it's hinted at in Roe. Um, and so uh, the, the idea is that there never was a legitimate tradition of protecting unborn children's um, right to life in the law. Uh, and uh, and so we're just restoring historic American liberty. And this, this history, as uh, Justice Alito is at some pains to explain in his decision, is false. Um, the, uh, the, the, the scholarship uh, that, um, that black men relied on in Roe and excuse me, in, in, uh, in Roe, um, was, uh, was very shoddy. And in fact, the, uh, the legal team behind Roe, um, uh, understood that there are, there are private memos among the lawyers and their assistants, um, from before Roe, where they say, you know, this seems like the author's really stretching to uh, to make this case. Um, if all we're c- concerned about is getting the court to, you know, to, to five votes in favor of our um, position, it it'll, it'll work, but it's not really, um, you know, true. Uh, and so there's always been this kind of fake history at the heart of Roe v. Wade. Um, in fact, we have centuries of indictments showing that at least um, once you could uh, uh, ascertain that there was an unborn child, uh, that abortion was illegal uh, and and criminalized and indictable. And even um, if, you, um, if you tried to uh, have an abortion, and you couldn't prove that you had an unborn child. And keep in mind, you know, embryology hadn't really developed for many of these centuries. Um, it was you maybe you couldn't indict and prosecute because you couldn't prove that the killing had taken place, but it was nevertheless considered an act without legally permissible purpose, and there were all kinds of restrictions that could apply to it. Okay, so let's talk about uh, the future. Um, and you know, for purposes, obviously the decision has not (laughs) actually come out yet. We don't know what'll happen, you know, uh, uh, maybe, maybe, uh, who knows, right? Who knows? Maybe justice Thomas will change his mind and, uh, and decide to, to vote to uphold Roe. It doesn't seem very likely, but let's assume that the final opinion is at least, uh, approximate, at least in its conclusions the same as this leaked draft opinion. What is, so what is the, we want to, I want to talk about the legal and political fallout for this. Let's talk about the legal fallout. Uh, so, I mean, what, what, what happens then? Like abortion, uh, banned everywhere, uh, handmaid's tale. So someone was asking me the other day about whether Texas is setting up border checkpoints to <laughs> prevent women from leaving the state, uh, to get abortions elsewhere. What, what, what happens after, uh, Roe falls. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, it, it goes into a messy federalist and democratic process. Um, so, first, uh, there will be some attempts in the Congress either to um, encode a national regime of abortion rights, 
um, along the lines of Roe, and although the thing the Democrats are behind goes a little bit further than Roe in some respects. Um, and there will be attempts by some uh, Republicans to outlaw uh, abortion, or at least to set a floor where um, you can't outlaw, uh, where you know there's a national ban on abortion after, say, six weeks or after 15 weeks or something like that. I tend to think that none of that in either direction is ultimately going to get enacted. Um, you know, the, the Democrats, uh, even in periods when they've had unified control of government, have not been able to get a national abortion law enacted. Um, you know, they tried in the Clinton years, um, Freedom of Choice Act. They've tried um, more recently with this Women's Health Protection Act, um, and they, they haven't been able to, uh, to do it. Um, they don't even have a majority in the Senate for it right now. And Republicans haven't been able to even get a ban on abortion after 20 weeks when they've had control of the government. Uh, and so um, I think you probably get a congressional deadlock and the real action is in the states. Now, um, in the state legislature, so, so in the states, you're going to have some states where the courts either have or will create their own mini Roe v. Wades where um, they're going to try to block legislative action. Uh, but in a, in a bunch of other states, you will have um, a legislative debate. And in some red states, um, you will have more or less complete bans on abortion. In your bluest states, a lot of them have already uh, encoded um, strong protections for abortion, New York State being an example of that, um, Rhode Island, uh, Virginia, um, Colorado. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, you, you have, I think, a zone of contestation in purpler states, places like Wisconsin, um, where it's going to depend on a lot of decisions and how the politics plays out and whether one side or the other makes strategic mistakes. Um, and you could see some back and forth on, uh, uh some of their laws. Um, so it's going to be, I think, uh, a long and messy struggle. Yeah, one of the interesting things to me is, uh, I guess a number of states have so-called trigger laws that they passed a while ago saying, uh, you know, if Roe is overturned, you know, uh, like abortion ban goes into effect or some states, they just have their old uh, abortion ban statutes are still in the books, even places like you know, Michigan or Wisconsin or whatever. Uh, and, oh, in Ohio, apparently they have a weird thing where they have like 30 days to think about it. <laughs> I don't know. They, they have their own waiting period. One thing uh, in general about sending something back to the states is that, you know, it, it, the political process can, you know, reach some sort of compromise or you can have different things in different places. Uh, for that reason, you know, just in terms of the politics of it, does that suggest that uh, maybe it won't be that big of a deal, or what do you what do you think there? Well, p one of the effects of this federalist structure is going to be, uh, I think, that more people end up living under abortion laws of which they approve. Um, there's a real ge geographic division uh, uh, on the issue, and the voters who are most supportive of legal abortion 
live in places t- disproportionately where abortion's not under threat, you know, right? They, they live in California and New York. They don't live uh, in Alabama. And so um, that, I think, does tend to uh, make the kind of pro-choice political backlash um, a little less likely than uh, than it otherwise would. Because, you're, again, you're just not going to see this kind of instant national ban. But doesn't this mean that, you know, for the, for the next few cycles, every state and even federal election, that this is going to be, you know, right there in our face is probably going to be the key issue that everyone's talking about? Well, it's going to be a key issue, certainly. Um, you know, it's not clear to me that, for example, in this fall's elections, it's going to matter more than inflation. Um, I suspect gas prices are going to continue to be a bigger issue um, than uh, than abortion regulation is. Um, it's rarely been the top issue for most voters uh, in the past, and obviously that could change because it's more of a live issue now, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean um, it crowds out everything else. You know, look, abortion's Abortion has been, of course, this this vexing and neuralgic issue in our politics for quite a long time, even with the courts having taken on the job of settling it for everybody. Um, I think the one long-term effect of this could be actually, you know, assuming that it holds, that um, you know, the Democrats don't expand the courts or, or get new justices confirmed to go back to Roe. Um, and and it stays a kind of um, it stays federalized. Uh, I think it it might depolarize this issue that um, that it becomes possible to be a pro-choice Republican in a pro-choice area or a pro-life Democrat in a pro-life area um, without it uh, compromising or destroying your national ambitions um, in the way that uh, it has over the last two generations. Um, if you're out of step with your party or where your party is going. I want to talk a, a, a little broader point, and I know it's one that you just uh, alluded to in your um, Bloomberg piece. Um, the, the One of the complaints I'm seeing all over Twitter is, you know, they're, they're taking away our abortion rights, and, and now they're going to come for uh, consensual private sex, gay marriage, uh, birth control, you name it. They're all going down. What, if anything, does Justice Alito, uh, in the draft opinion, what, what, if anything, does he say um, that might address that? Well, he repeatedly takes pains to say that other issues are different and that there's nothing in this opinion that undermines um, precedents like uh, Obergefell, which uh, requires governments to recognize same-sex marriage, or Griswold versus Connecticut, the 1965 case, which made contraception a constitutional right, uh, or Lawrence v. Texas in 2003, which says um, you you can't outlaw um, consensual sexual activity. Um, that was a, a sodomy law uh, or a, a same-sex sodomy law in Texas, um, and he he just says you know look none of those things involves um, uh, what is the destruction of human life or at least of potential life. Um, and so this is a different issue. Uh, so, and that's all, that's all he, he says, although he says it several times. 
um, on that front. I think that there are some other reasons for thinking that these cases are likely to play out very differently. And, uh, and one is just that if you think about the strategy that pro-lifers employed against Roe over the last 50 years, it was a kind of um, chip away strategy that culminates in forcing the court to choose between um, keeping its previous jurisprudence um, or not. And I'm not sure you can even start the process up in, um, in these other cases. So for example, like either a state recognizes same-sex marriage or it doesn't, you know, it's not like you can have a 15 week ban, uh, on same sex marriage, um, or, uh, you know, the equivalent of a, of a ban on partial birth abortion, um, there, um, it's not like there's, you can have a popular prohibition on contraception the way in a lot of places you could have popular restrictions on abortion and then tee them up into court cases. Um, so yeah, I'm really not sure that, that this goes the places that, um, that frankly liberals want to scare people into thinking that it's going to go. Okay. So I do want to talk a little bit uh, about like what the so we talked about the political aspects. We talked about the legal aspects, just in terms of the effect on, uh, like abortion itself. Uh, I have heard some people say, well, you know, uh, most states under this are not gonna. They're either not gonna restrict abortion, or they will restrict it uh, only, only you know, towards the end of pregnancy, where there really aren't that many abortions, and you know, the states that will restrict it, they they basically already have a lot of restrictions, so there aren't a lot of abortion clinics there. People can still go to another state. So, you know, maybe this won't actually affect uh, the number of abortions that occur all that much. Do you have a perspective or any thoughts on that, what's likely to happen? Uh, yeah, so um, let, me, let me first say something else uh, which was kind of related, which is that you know, sometimes you'll hear people say things like, well, you know, this doesn't make a big difference because, um, uh, you know, it doesn't, a lot of places, it's not going to prohibit abortion. Maybe the number of abortions isn't either even going to, um, to fall uh, a great deal. Um, and I think that, you know, when you can answer that on its own terms and say that, um, uh, in fact, uh, you are likely to see some decline, some significant declines in abortion. Uh, I think, you know, the early evidence suggests that Texas is going to see a, a reduction in abortion and it's going to, and it's going to outweigh the, the effect of people going to different states and getting abortions. But second, I just want to make the point that, that from the pro-life perspective, from the perspective that, um, that abortion is a grave injustice and a denial of, human rights uh, to unborn children, it is an advance merely to no longer be saying uh, that the Constitution makes unborn children unpersons um, who, you know, you have a right to kill. Um, uh, that's a step towards justice by itself that shouldn't be underrated. So one of the critiques I'm sure we've all seen is that um, Men shouldn't be making laws about what happens in a woman's body. And I guess the three of us men probably shouldn't be having a conversation about what's happening in a woman's body. Um, 
I think all three of us are married. If 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 our wives were having this conversation, I, I what do you think that what do you think that conversation would look like? I think if anything, if I know my wife and I suspect uh, both of your wives, I think if anything, the conversation might be even more um, adamantly pro life. Uh, is there any validity to this whole idea that men shouldn't be having any uh, part of the conversation about what's happening in a woman's body? And would it, would it make a difference if we actually somehow made the legislation limited to women voting on this? <laughs> um, you know, historically, um, this has been one of the great myths. There, there is no real um, significant distinction between the views of men on average and the views of women on average about abortion policy. Sometimes on some sub-question, you can find men being a little bit more pro-choice. You can find men being a little bit more pro-life, but the distinctions are not big. There are are many bigger differences um, based on things like marital status with married people, both men and women um, tending to be more pro-life than single people. Um, both men and women. And, uh, and you can see other distinctions like that in the polling, but gender really isn't it. Um, and explanations for the gender gap where, where men tend to vote more Republican and women tend to vote more Democratic that rely heavily on abortion are therefore, I think, um, pretty dubious. Um, and then on the, just the general question of whether you are allowed to talk about it, um, I think, uh, you know, look, we're all citizens and, uh, and we all get a say in um, what the state of our law is going to be. And uh, I guess if, you, if we want to play this game, you know, we're all, we're all former fetuses. That's right. And don't forget, men can get pregnant now, too. So, uh... well, yeah, they, they have twisted themselves into a pretzel <laughs> on that question. All right. Thank you uh, very much for joining us. And uh, I I can tell uh, from background noise that you you know you you don't you don't just talk the talk and in the pro life stuff you walk the walk too. So uh, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, anyone who wants to uh, learn more, check out uh, Rebecca's recent column in Bloomberg uh, and other writings. And uh, that's it for today. Thanks for having me. And uh, sorry for the color commentary in the background there. (laughs) It's good. It's good.